0: Hello again it's Charles Bayman and welcome to part two of our off-the-agenda discussion with my very special guest and friend Sir Kenneth Alisap. and today we're in the Brigade and Beyond Food Foundation, an institution that has trained many hundreds of apprentices into new jobs and given many homeless people new skills. As we heard in part one, Sir Kenneth was the first British-born black man to serve on the board of a major UK public company and in May 2015 became the first ever black Lord Lieutenant of Greater London. In part one, he inspired us with his own story and talked to the role of education and learning at home, at school, and through higher education. Here in part two, I look forward to asking him about the role of Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, philanthropy, being a role model, and the opportunities that may lie ahead for the next generation beyond these challenging times. Moving on beyond a remarkably successful career and within it too, you are the first in many fields and many achievements. You were the first British born black man to serve on the board of a major UK PLC uh, and indeed the first black Lord Lieutenant of great London appointed by her majesty, the Queen. How have you found navigating senior spaces that haven't previously been open to people of colour? Well, I think
1: I go back to uh, Mr Spencer. You know, caviar, champagne, bring it on. Except the caviar I'm not so keen. It's a, it's a, a profound question that. So and it, it isn't about how I've navigated it. It's actually how welcoming the, these, these worlds have been. So, and, and this is possibly an incredible fact for most people. So imagine that one day you get a letter from the clerk the Privy Council saying, my job is to select people, to recommend people, not select, recommend people to Her Majesty the Queen and the Prime Minister to become Her Majesty the Queen's representatives in, in a county. This is the job that goes back over 500 years. King Henry VIII created it. It is the, rep- the personal representative of the monarch in each of the counties. And your name, after taking soundings, has come to my attention, and I will be interested to know whether you be interested in the role. I confess, my first reaction was to assume this was a spoof from someone I'd been at university with who had borne a grudge for 40 years and thought they would get their own back because they knew I wouldn't be able to say anything but yes, and then they'd spring out of the closet and catch me out. Anyway, happily, it wasn't a spoof. It was very serious, and I went for what turned out to be an interview with the clerk to the Privy Council, and he asked me some questions. He said to me, one of the big focuses that... Around here, which is the Prime Minister and the then Prime Minister and Her Majesty the Queen, we have have concluded we need to make sure our Lord Lieutenants are more representative of the population for which which they are her representative. And obviously, that means something very different. He didn't say this, but it means something very different in Greater London from, for example, a a Scottish uh, rural county where there are very few people, lots of animals, huge numbers of, of acres. Representing that group of people and representing the representing the monarch to them is a very different task from this vibrant place, which is London. So to be told that that is the, as it were, the, the frame within which I was being asked to consider this, and then to just move through the various different graceful opportunities to meet people and culminating in being appointed, it's, it's what our country is about, it's what, what it stands for. Now, what I do in the, as Lord Lieutenant is to uphold the dignity of the monarch in greater London. In King Henry VIII's time, that meant quelling riots and raising the army. Obviously, I don't do either of those things now, but I try to find ways to reach into the different communities, of which there are many in London, and to connect them with each other and to connect them with our core British values, which are exemplified by Her Majesty. And it involves everything from pinning medals on the chest of British Empire medal winners, for example, to thank them on behalf of the Queen for what they've done for the community, to talking to school children, to receiving Her Majesty when she comes, uh, or when any member of the royal family comes to, to visit the capital on, on an official visit. It is the most, most remarkable world in which I now find myself. Could I have predicted this when I was playing on a site in Nottingham in 1958 or something? Of course not. Did I know that this role existed as recently as a decade ago? Actually, no, I knew a Lord Lieutenant. I didn't know there was one of Greater London. And we, and there are 98 of us across the UK and the job that we do is to build bridges between communities and connect communities with the values that are British. Exactly what Her Majesty does. And I am so honored to been given that, that opportunity. What I find is it's really easy. Communities want to be connected. People want to make things happen. And so it, it's, I, I mean, I'm living the dream.
0: Fantastic. Um, And you alluded uh, to it a little earlier that obviously with Covid, life as a a Lord Lieutenant has looked and felt a little bit different. Could you give us some examples of of how the role has evolved through these challenging times?
1: Yes, let me choose a couple of examples. In normal times, uh, I'm, I'm saying that to build the bridges in London, I think I want people to feel a sense of identity as Londoners, but as individuals, a sense of connectedness, and then, as I say, connect with other communities. And when I look at people, Charles, people here filming us today, and I say, what are the most important things to defining oneself? I'd say there are three. And I say there is your, your, where you come from, your heritage, what you do as a job, your occupation, if you do a job, if you volunteer, whatever it happens to be. And your faith. Now you may not have a faith, but not having a faith is a defining characteristic. So I've set up three councils populated by distinguished members of the the Lieutenantcy cadre. I have 100 deputies in London, so I have several on each of those groups, looking at programs for each of those things. So faith, occupation, and heritage, and my faith council to choose an example. I have worked with the Faith and Belief Forum, a multi-faith organization in London, to create an annual award to thank micro faith-based charities who've gone out of their way to do something to help other people. And we have an event every year where I present awards in my splendid uniform. I give a certificate and a photo opportunity Last year, it was 60 or 70 micro-charities that have done the most remarkable things. But I remember standing on the stage, looking out at the audience, waiting to come up onto the stage, and they're all nervous. For them, it's like a school speech day. So this isn't just getting a certificate and moving on. It's not an industry award ceremony. This is a really deep thing. The Queen's representative is going to give me a certificate in a moment. And I saw a Buddhist monk, a Hindu priest, and a Roman Catholic chatting to each other about something. And I thought, this is is building bridges. This is London. This is society in its most civilized extreme. So so that's what I would do in an example of what I would do in normal times. Obviously in lockdown, none of that's been possible. You can't do those, well, we've done a Zoom version of it. So so that was possible. But but all the other things I would do, the visits, the, the pinning the medals and so on, not possible. So I've substituted all of that with writing letters to people who've been pointed out to me as having made a great contribution through the, through the time of, of, of the pandemic. And I, I'm one story, a shopkeeper, um, obviously of Asian heritage, I would imagine born here, but of Asian heritage, who worked from early in the morning till 9.30 at night in his shop during lockdown, would then work from 9.30 until he'd finished delivering goods to people who were isolating and couldn't come to the shop. So he would finish work at 11 o'clock midnight every night, having started early in the morning. So that's pretty impressive, but on his day off, he would then phone those people to find out how they were getting on and to talk them through what life was like and just to, to, to reach out to them as one human to another. I wrote to him, uh, he, he was featured on the front page of the local, his local newspaper, and he said, When I received this letter, I cried for three hours. Now, that story is everything I care about in London, really. Helping other people, somebody saying thank you, that person who's been thanked, then reacting like that. I think that's what society and civilization is about.
0: Ken, that's a wonderful story, and thank you. That's a lovely articulation of, of a role that I'm sure many people don't know exists or certainly don't know what it does and what, it, what its frame of reference is. And alongside, of course, uh, Lord Lieutenant of Greater London, you also carry the title, quite recently, I understand, of, uh, of High Bailiff and Searcher of the Sanctuary of Westminster Abbey. I wonder, are you able to put a little bit of flesh to that bone and explain <laughs> a little bit more about what those two roles are? Well...
1: So something that predates uh, the lieutenancy is, of course, Westminster Abbey, 1,000 or 700-something years old. Um, Edward the Confessor essentially made it what it was at the beginning. It's had a very interesting history uh, through all that period of time. Obviously, it was a Catholic Church, then a Protestant Church, then a slightly wobbly bit, and then a Protestant Church again. Coronations have been held there since time immemorial. Kings are, are buried there. Um, The Tomb of the Unknown Warrior is there because we buried someone, an unknown person, who sacrificed their life for the nation and the values. We buried them amongst kings. So Westminster Abbey is an icon of a lot of the values that I've been speaking about in in this conversation. It's also a very important uh, building in in London. It's also very important in the context of the Commonwealth. So Westminster Abbey is is iconic. There's There's nothing else like it in the world. It's run by the dean and chapter. So the dean is the the head priest, as it were, and then there are five members of the chapter. And and they are in charge of it, except, of course, they're not really in charge of it, because it's the queens, it's the monarchs, and so they report to the the queen and to God. And that's that's what the abbey does. And it has two lay advisors that are members of the college and advise the dean and chapter. The high steward, who's the Duke of Buccleuch, and the the high bailiff, and so to the sanctuary. The high bailiff is me. A long time ago, the high bailiff was actually the high bailiff of Westminster, the city of Westminster, and did the things that the high sheriff would do in most of the other uh, boroughs and counties, sorry, cities and, and towns in the country. So I'm devolved from, from the high sheriff, but that was a long time ago. But I would have had lots of people go around with, with truncheons to beat people for doing things wrong, collect debts and so on. Unfortunately, that has also been taken away from me. But the search of the sanctuary, Because it it was a sacred place, people seeking sanctuary could go to the abbey and hide. Uh, The the, uh, widow of one of our kings, former kings, was one such person. But also criminals will go there and they don't deserve it. So the search of the sanctuary's job was to make sure that the people seeking sanctuary were legit and not, and he had a different stick, I would imagine, for dealing with with those people. Sadly, that's also been taken away from me now, and I'm sort of a
0: non-executive director on the board of, of Westminster Abbey, but a really important institution. God, that's fascinating. Fascinating roles. Uh, Extraordinary breadth of history that we, uh, all of us, could probably understand much more. I'm going to move on, and you've said before, and I'm going to quote here, that you believe that many white business leaders in the UK actually do nothing to further the cause of racial diversity for the very reason that they are afraid to discuss it in case that they inadvertently cause some sense of offence. And I suppose my question to you uh, is what advice would you give people who are reluctant to talk about race race because they are anxious about getting perhaps the terminology wrong or indeed causing some sense of offence? Well, the first
1: big thing I would say is it's really important to talk about it. Because if you don't know and understand, you can't possibly act or react properly. The landmine problem, though, is quite a serious problem. It's a problem in our society at the moment that people have opinions. They're not based on facts. They just say things and then, they, and then they dig in. I was at a, was at a high table dinner back in, in my college not, not long ago, and we were having an argument about this. That's the point of high table dinners, but we were having an argument about this because people around the table said, if you say something that I find insulting, it's insulting. And I said, no, 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 if I say something that is inadvertently upset you, that's inadvertently upsetting. If I say something which is insulting, and I mean to insulting, insult you, that's insulting. You're saying they're the same thing. And these people said, yes, they are the same thing. I said, okay, so on the underground, somebody treads on my foot accidentally and apologizes. Somebody stamps on my foot deliberately. They're not the same thing. And what really is important is that we are able to talk about things in the country without feeling that we are going to tread on some kind of landmine because someone has decided to take offence. And if they take offence, that's their decision, and they let me know, I can apologise, and if they don't accept my apology, we don't need to speak to each other. But but what's happening at the moment is people are essentially being cancelled in their own work environment and find it hard to talk about these things, whatever these things are. I remember the first time I met uh, a a, a transgender person. Uh, I have no no vocabulary to talk to that person. It's the first time I've met somebody. But that doesn't mean I can't speak to her. That doesn't mean she doesn't respond to me. So we pick our way carefully around the kinds of questions that one wants to ask. And and she gave me the kinds of messages she needed me to hear. And we we became chums. But but, uh, so not not having the knowledge doesn't mean I can't have the conversation. But I have to be sympathetic and sensitive to the other person's feelings and sensitivities. Unfortunately, the the uproar that comes up every time any of these issues get raised stops people talking. Now, how do I pick talent? To my organization to get competitive advantage if I can't have a dialogue with the people I'm choosing to recruit. So we have to be brave. That's not a good answer to the question, though. That's the reason why we have to have an answer to the question. The answer to the question then comes from safe spaces, finding the right way to make something happen. A very good friend of mine is one of the leads in, in BAME matters in the armed services. And I said to him, How do you deal with it? it must be quite difficult. He's white. So how do you deal with that? He said, Well, I, I've got a, a counterpoint, a, point, a junior officer. Who is the sort of the internal lead? Said, so, and he and I have long conversations, on walks together, just the two of us. So there is no witness. There's no question of recording anything, and we can say anything we want, and it's all forgotten. Now that's an extreme example of the point, and it shouldn't have to be like that. But if that gets two men to be comfortable in the conversation, that's the way to do it. The big crime
0: is not to have the conversation. That's, I mean, that's extreme, extremely helpful advice, Ken, and I'm sure many of my listeners. We'll, we'll pick that up very, very clearly. Thank you for, for that. And from your <clears throat> own career history and or wider achievements, we'll pick up on some of those in a minute. There's a lot to inspire younger generations. You've been an extraordinary role model, if I can put it that way. But does the knowledge that you're blazing a trail for and two others uh, come with its own challenges? And how perhaps do you navigate that sense of responsibility?
1: Well. I, it, it does come in its own challenges. And, and I have to say I'm a relatively recent convert to the role, responsibility of being a role model. So, so I haven't always thought that way. For a lot of my career, I was busy getting on with my career. I cared about other people. I'd been involved in charity and so on, but I, I, wasn't bla- I didn't see myself as blazing a trail. I saw myself as getting on with my career, getting pay rises and promotions and those sorts of things. But there's a, there's a, a, a poignant story, which is, if you'll bear with me, worth telling. I was on the board of Reuters, at the time, which was, as you rightly said earlier, I was the first British-born black person to be on the board of a FTSE 100 company. That's a lot of adjectives. The important point is, therefore, as one of my dear friends, Michael O'Boda once said, if Ken can do it, anybody can. Deeply insulting point, but absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, ho, hey ho, Michael O'Boda, thank you. Anyway, I was, on, I was on the board and I, and I was asked by the, um, I forgot what it was called now, the, I think it was the African-Caribbean affinity group, affinity group or something, anyway, I was asked to chair a debate at headquarters in, in Canary Wharf, on whether role models are important for black families. And I said, no, you know, that's, that's not my world. I mean, no, I'm not gonna do that. I don't wanna be labeled like that. They said, Ken, it's really important. You've know, got 100 people coming, we, and you are the only black director. It's quite important in Black History Month that you just, oh, so I reluctantly say yes. And I, a car picked me up in my, I said yes, and eventually a car picked me up in my office in the West End, drive me to Canary Wharf. The driver of the car, whom I shall call Ben, has been a driver. He now drives me privately as well, so I've long left that board. But he, over all the years that I've known him, still calls me Sir. And I can never get him to call me Ken. So I get into the back of his car and off we set through Soho. I've got my phone, I'm ringing somebody, got my laptop on my lap, I've got my papers beside me on the seat. We're picking our way through Soho. And I said, I, with the benefit of hindsight, I said patronizingly to Ben, I said, Ben, um, I'm on my way to a debate uh, at Reuters to talk about whether role models are important for black families. What do you think? Ring, 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 ring on the phone. And he looked up in the mirror and he said, yes, sir. And it was chilling. So I put the phone down and I said, whoa, Ben, that was a bit heartfelt. Well, why did you put it like that? So we weaved our way and He said, sir, I have two children He said they are both in their late teens, we live in Peckham, they don't think that black people work. So I've had a terrible problem persuading them to think about applying for higher education. I'm a trained salesman, trained by IBM, I'm trained to pick up body language and tone. So I smart-arsely say to Ben, ah, I said, you've been having a serious problem. That sounds like you've solved it. He said, yes, I have, sir. I'm pleased to say my daughter is going to university and my son is going to art college. So I get my phone out again, this study's over now. And I said, well, that's wonderful, Ben. Well done. I said, well, what, um, what, uh, t- you know? I said, obviously you work, so they know that black people work. So therefore there should never have been a problem. He said, no, but I'm their father, so They don't see me as a role model. I said, well, so as you cracked it, what was it? <laughs> I just in redial and he said i downloaded your biography from the Reuters website sir and show them what you have done i don't think i've ever felt so small in my life
0: ken that is a, a remarkable story um and of course in 2010 you and a group of influential business and cultural leaders came together to discuss how you might help the next generation uh, of leaders so and in so doing established the Alito Foundation, I think short for a a legacy for tomorrow, providing an opportunity for groups of of talented people to find ways in which they can uh, nurture and develop that talent. Can you tell us a little bit more about this extraordinary uh, foundation?
1: Yes, it goes goes back to actually to Ben and that journey. So this is in a sense the embodiment of that. My argument is in this country, my arguments are all about this country. I, I don't seek to judge other nations and other nations' values and social structures and so on. I only really talk about this country, this country being the United Kingdom, to be clear, not just England. And my argument is we need to reach into those boys and girls who might've gone to secondary modern school or in my story of a long time ago, who feel they're excluded, the the children of Ben who feel that this, this nation is not their nation and show them that it is. There are two ways that I've identified, or that have been identified to deal with it. One is you find child, and child, and child, and you raise their aspirations. And that's the mentoring, that's the youth club model, and so on, and that's really important. And I'm, I'm president of London Youth, which has 750 members, youth clubs across London, and we try institutionally to lift the aspirations of young people in the volume. But the real change, the system change, will come through leadership. And if you have leaders in the country who've got the kinds of lived experiences that Ben not have in Peckham, that I've got from all those years ago in the 50s and the 60s and so on, and where those people are running the country, then we, we can be pretty confident that policies will reflect that. So how do we make that happen? We need to populate the, the leadership elite with people with those kinds of lived experiences. And that's what the Alito Foundation stands for. And what we do is we bring in tomorrow's leaders. So our, our, our motto is sharing success with tomorrow's leaders. It's a rigorous selection. So think Sandhurst, it's hard to get in. We start off then with a summer school, a learning academy where we spend four days in giving them a high octane injection of social capital. my my earlier point, and then there's a mentoring program that lasts thereafter, and then there's a career development program, which is an extension of the mentoring program, and our intention is to create a cadre of people who've gone through that process, who feel a sense of social responsibility, and and are going to make a difference to society. And they can cut through the barriers that exist, because they can either recognize them and we give them the techniques, or they realize they don't exist and they can just carry on.
0: And actually, I mean, interestingly, you've had many, many people through this programme over, over what's what, 11, 12 years or so. Um, how does the alumni base look and feel? And are they engaged equally now in, in helping and supporting the work of the foundation? Yeah. Yes. The
1: first thing is I'm really pleased with where we've come. It's quite humbling. The, the last one I, we had was sponsored by BT. And I sat in the auditorium and all these things are happening and I remember this wild idea I had a decade ago and now it is actually, it's embarrassing, it's humbling how it's grown and it's become of itself. The most satisfying thing about it is how alumni have reached out to help other alumni to do something. So the network has been working. We have some astonishing success stories. Now these, these young people would have done it without the Elite Foundation. I hope we've, we've accelerated it, but they would have done it without. But what's more important is they are now back to that Ben story, being role models for other people and demonstrating how the barriers can be torn down. I mean, I would choose. I, I should choose one, it's probably unfair, so I won't, won't name them. But we have a young lady grew, who also grew up in Peckham, so there's a Peckham a pattern emerging here, and one night she heard lots of noise outside the flat that she lived in and somebody had been stabbed and she had a helicopter arriving and they took this child off to to a, a trauma unit somewhere and she made the decision there and then she would become a trauma surgeon she got a scholarship to a, she went to state school she got a scholarship to a really good public school for the sixth form and then was not accepted for medical school so her idea had been dashed so what she then did, she got an internship in working for someone in the House of a Lords, that member of the House of Lords, who happened, luckily for her, Karma, happened to have somebody who was, a, he was a doctor, and, she had, and he had someone there as a younger person who had just finished medical school. He got the younger person to coach her on her application she reapplied to medical school. She recently qualified as a doctor. But she's also set up a charity recruiting other people from difficult, difficult backgrounds into the medical profession. She's won a Queen's Award, etc., etc. These are examples of the talent in the country, and we need to find this talent and to grow this talent.
0: The criticality of role models, but, yeah, and it's a fantastic pr- programme. Thank you uh, for that. But giving back to the wider communities clearly, and has been, Clearly, very, very important to you th- throughout the course of, of your life. Uh, you're known for your very generous philanthropy, uh, not least you endowed the Elisa Library at the Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, and importantly, as I understand it, with a very much an open access uh, policy. How much does this drive you in your in your work today? One of the most satisfying aspects of
1: my life, I have to say, is I find the more I give, whether it's time, talent or treasure, the more accumulates. It is the most remarkable. It's like, it's like a fairy story, really. So Julia, my wife and I, gave away most of our net wealth to endow the library at Fitzwilliam College Cambridge because that experience gave me the, the, the social capital I speak about so much in, 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 in oodles, in barrel loads. And, and that college did for me what I'm trying to do for everybody else. It gave me a realization of what I was capable of doing. It respected me in a way that I hadn't been expected to be respected because I was an oik, age 18 or 19, et cetera. I mean, it's probably boring for you and for the audience, but let me get off my chest the story. I remember going for my interview at Cambridge. The only reason I applied to Cambridge was because I didn't get on with my headmaster, who was an Oxford graduate. And so therefore, if you're going to apply to one, or the, it has to be the other. So I applied to Cambridge. So nothing noble, no strategic planning there. I chose Fitzwilliam only because somebody else in my school had once been there. So I have to say zero planning. I arrive on this lovely sunny day in Cambridge. It's beautiful. I realize this is a place I want to be. And I get up to, get up to Fitzwilliam for my interview. And suddenly the enormity of what I was about to do descended upon me. So I hadn't had all the normal things that one's parents would do of terrifying you, warning you, scolding you. So I step into the porter's lodge, the first time in that experience feeling nervous and no longer confident. And the head porter was a man behind the counter, a war veteran, um, a sergeant major. And he said, good afternoon, sir. How can I help you? I don't think I'd ever been called sir before I was 18 years old. And I said, well, I'm here for my interview. And he said, yes sir, what's your name? And he looked down the list, he said, follow me, sir. And I remember walking through paradise, following this man, his ramrod straight military back as he click clacked with his shoes through the college and sat me down at the pace to wait for my interview. Now I tell that story because think about the other ways he could have dealt with that. No eye contact, well, you want to go around there, here's the, there are a million ways he could have dealt with that, but he treated me with respect. I expect to be treated with respect, but I I was surprised at that time. That is is the essence of Fitzwilliam College, and and that story went on, you don't have time to hear the next three years of my experience, but that went on through three years, and I gave back politically at college, et cetera, et cetera. But one day I was able to give back big time, the last building, Fitzwilliam's a new, co- relatively modern college, a mere 100 and something years old. the so relatively modern college. The one building that we needed was the library. Our old library was a horrible, miserable place where you went to get a book and go back to your room to study. And anyone who remembers studying knows that the worst place to study is your room because all the other distractions are stored in your room. A library is a, is a good study space, and we were able uh, to scrape together the money to endow it. And so now for all time, certainly 350 years, the Odessa Library is a beacon to what that place did to me. And I, and I think giving back is, it's, it's, it's in our national characteristic, isn't it? But again, what I'm giving back is time and talent, and, and when I have some, some treasure, people have given their lives to make that possible for me. I go back to the image of that bomb site. You know, that wasn't just a playground. That was a whole tale of human misery that people sacrificed to make my opportunities become available. And I think I have a sacred duty to give back.
0: Well, that uh, coming full circle to that, that first question I, 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 I asked of you in reference to that bomb site in the 19, 1950s. Ken, it's been an absolute delight, a real delight to, to, to speak to you today on, uh, on, on Off the Agenda. I have one final question, if, if I may. We've talked a lot about role models and we've talked a lot about the next gen- generation. Uh, next-generation leadership, the criticality and importance of it. Um, we're coming out of an extraordinary, challenging time. Life will look different um, beyond Covid, if I can put it that way. What would be the single piece of advice or the defining piece of advice that you would offer to that next generation?
1: I think the context in which we operate needs to be called out for what it is. Life is really competitive. You know, you and I compete in business. The businesses that I'm responsible for compete with other businesses. And that goes up and up and up. The nation competes with other nations. That doesn't mean we have to be at war, but we are competing. We're trying to do things better. That's how human innovation and creativity happens, by that, by that, that synthesis that comes from, from competition. So we should start with recognising that life is a competition. Now, I don't care whether you're in a charity, as, as I am in many areas, we are competing with other charities to do better things for people. That's where the, the whole essence of, of human life, actually of life. So we, start with, we must start with the view that life is competitive. If you start with that view and then you say, how do we win in a competitive environment? The answer is easy. You get the best possible talent and you bring that talent to bear on the challenges. And again, competition is positive, not negative. So if you, if you aren't able to access the best possible talent, you will be outdone by someone who's got better talent than you. A, a football team with poor players gets beaten by a football team with good players. It isn't a complicated concept. So just being complacent about what you did last year and last quarter and so on is not the way to survive. That's long been the case. You know, you and I both know really well, if you look at the FTSE 100, go back 50 years, only 40 or 50% of those companies are still on the foot. So it's, it's there, so no one should ever argue it's not competitive. People do, but they're, but, but they're wrong. So life is competitive, we need to get our hands on talent. If you've got talent, then you should be making sure that talent gets listened to and gets applied. And if organizations aren't interested in your talent, don't work for them or with them, because they're not going to be around in the next cycle. What the the pandemic has done, one positive thing and one negative thing. The positive thing is it shone a big light on that and said, you know what, we don't have to do things the way we've done it forever because we can do it quite differently. The negative though, is there is a general sense of gloom that that has descended on everybody. I'm one of the world's most optimistic people, but even I feel it. But people that are not like me, who've already found life a struggle, it's been a really big struggle because of this. Two things have to happen from that. One is we must recognise it, and societally we need to help those people at the bottom of, of that sort of confidence stack to be able to survive and to prosper, and that's really important. And that's a state responsibility, it's a charitable responsibility, it's a community responsibility. But those of us who are agitating for change and think there is a way to win better, this is our time because complacency and hubris are not going to see people through the next four or five years. So I'd encourage people who've got an idea to go out and try and exploit it. I'd encourage people that write to a firm to apply for a job and are not even acknowledged to ring up the chief executive of that firm and berate them. You know, this is the time to take control of your own destiny. We hopefully won't have another experience like this. So I view this as the spring after a dreadful pandemic winter.
0: And you used the word a little earlier, be brave. I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess that would be part of the advice too.
1: Well, not everybody can be, to be fair. And so those of us who are able to be brave, owe it to those who aren't to help them and to look after them. So yes, those of us who can should be brave. Those who aren't should expect that we will look after them rather than just trample on them. And again, there are business people, there are people in all walks of life who think if you're weak, that's your fault. That's not British
0: well that's both a positive and a very balanced uh, perspective I think on which to end a very very enjoyable discussion. Ken it's been an absolute delight uh, to be able to speak to a good friend thank you thank you for your candid approach thank you for your inspiration and thank you for your authenticity today it's hugely appreciated and we wish you all the very best in in the many and different roles that you have ahead thank you Ken. Well, what a privilege. It's been a real honour to speak to Sir Kenneth today, to hear his wonderful story and stories, his perspective and his advice on some of the matters we all face at this moment in time. Thank you, Sir Kenneth, and thank you all for listening. As always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions and inspirational guests. That's all from me, other than to say thank you again for watching and listening and bye for now.